it's a powerful tool, but it's also kind of a foot gun. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Bridget Krumhout, and we'll introduce our guests after a word from our sponsors. The worst thing about the Arrested DevOps podcast is when it ends. You're left wondering what to do next. What are you going to listen to on your commute home? How do you occupy your time when walking the dog? What are you going to listen to during the quarterly all-hands meeting? But fear not, dear listener, there is a solution. You need to subscribe to Software Defined Talk right now. It's a weekly podcast that recaps all the news in cloud computing, DevOps, and enterprise software. The hosts, Kote, Matt Ray, and Brandon Wichard, will keep you up to date on all things cloud while offering tips on how to optimize your Costco haul and how to PowerPoint. It's a fun, free-flowing conversation that will keep you entertained and informed. What are you waiting for? Subscribe to the podcast today by visiting softwaredefinedtalk.com or by searching for Software Defined Talk in your favorite podcast app. Okay, it is super exciting to be chatting with all four authors of the forthcoming Kubernetes Best Practices book from O'Reilly Media. Uh, I'll have them introduce themselves in, say, byline order. Um, like, who are you and what makes you want to write books about Kubernetes? Uh, let's start with Brendan, if we haven't lost Brendan. Uh, you know, I, I think that I've written a few books. Um, I guess it's a legacy of once upon a time being a professor. Um, I really <laughs> like the teach people. Um, I guess maybe it's a byproduct of the fact that I'm excited about people using and empowering them with technology. And if you don't teach them how to use it, that doesn't usually happen. So, um, you know, I write because I like to teach. That's awesome. I love it. Okay. All right. Uh, Eddie. Hey, um, I'm Eddie Vialba. I've been at Microsoft for 10 years, uh, actually last week. And um, uh, just understanding um, that being able to really un- understand what customers are looking for, what people are looking for, and, and my knowledge in the product um, has really driven me to kind of spread that wealth, that knowledge um, to others. Um, I've seen uh, Dave and I both have been in the field for quite some time and seeing what can go wrong and epically wrong uh, and how we can possibly uh, get that out there for even small startups that don't have the luxury of getting help from companies like Microsoft um, to really look at this space of Kubernetes and, and cloud native and, um, and get the knowledge that the, the big folks uh, learn really quickly and also from, from bad experiences and from good experiences. So that's why I love to get this right, this written. All right, Dave. Yeah, my name is Dave Strabel. Uh, so I help customers daily be successful with Kubernetes. Uh, I won't lie. I never had aspirations to really write a book, uh, but uh, when the opportunity presented itself, uh, things I do like to do is help break down, you know, uh, complex technologies to make them more simpler to help cus- people on really understand those technologies. Uh, so I was really glad that I uh, did help write a book. Uh, so it really changed my mind, uh, you know, how to really help people with technology. All right, and Lockie. Hello, my name is Lachlan Evenson. 
Uh, I wanted to write the book specifically because I wanted a chance to give back to the community. I have learnt so much from the community over the years and people, you know, I remember in the early days approaching Brendan in like late 2014, early 2015, and he stood in the hallway and answered all my questions. And that was kind of a really, uh, you know, it's the community steps up and answers these questions. So one is I wanted a chance to give back. The other one was I wanted to an opportunity to write a book that I wanted. So I've been through the journey of, of Kubernetes and it growing up in the ecosystem. So I would have loved in 2015 to have this kind of almanac of all the things that uh, you should do when looking at Kubernetes and kind of shortcutting all the decision points you might have to make when building and operating Kubernetes. So I think this book uh, provides that kind of level of you know, get to the problems you need to answer really quickly. So that was my excitement with uh, having the opportunity to write the book. Nice. So uh, for any of our listeners, if you acquire um, a time machine, instead of bringing a sports almanac to the past, you should bring uh, this book and give it to Lockie in 2015. All right. Action item for all listeners who all, of course, have to go get the book and read the book and then get it and put in your time machine. Okay, so I think for a lot of our listeners, uh, they may be using Kubernetes, which is awesome. And some of them are like, that is all I hear about, but why? What even is this Kubernetes? Where did it come from? Brendan, you're probably responsible for something. Why don't you give us the five-second elevator pitch? What's going on with this Kubernetes thing, and why do we need best practices for it today? Well, I mean, I think that... uh... It has moved on from being something that people heard about somewhere to something that everybody is looking to implement. Um, and But I think that our experience building these managed services is that um, while people are, are convinced by the value that the tech can bring, they are sometimes, uh, they sometimes struggle in figuring out how to accomplish the particular task that they want to do. Um, and you know, as, uh, as as Dave said, uh, they, uh, you know, we work with a bunch of people hands on, but um, that's not super scalable. And so, you know, I think that being writing down the best practices that we've seen helps sort of up level the knowledge in the entire community, because um, it is important to do it right. Right? We've seen lots of people sort of shoot themselves in their foot. It's a powerful tool, but it's also kind of a foot gun. So um, we want to make sure people people do. It. Right. That's why we, we write these things down. And I think in contrast to other books that, you know, other people have written at times that sort of explain Kubernetes in general. Um, I think what's great about this book is it's really focused around specific topics. We don't expect you necessarily to read it cover to cover, um, but rather to dip in on a topic when you're working on, say, machine learning or, you know, you're working on uh, another aspect of the project. Um, and you want to just hear, read a quick summary of like, what should I do? You know what? What? What, are, what should I be thinking about as I approach doing machine learning on Kubernetes, or what should I think about as I approach setting up a Kubernetes cluster for a bunch of developers? Um, so it's, it's kind of maybe maybe more of a short series of short essays rather than uh, you know a, a whole put together book. Um, and I think that's great. A, there was a need for that um, kind of consulting for people. Right. So people shouldn't expect narrative flow or narrative structure necessarily, but this is something where they can you know, uh, go directly to what interests them. Uh, so I'm curious, and maybe this is something that, I know, Lockie and I were talking about a little bit, what makes now the right time to do a best practices book? For me, it was 
now there's more adoption of Kubernetes out there in the ecosystem, and the ecosystem has become uh, more complex as a result of everybody using it. So there are a bunch of tools. Kubernetes itself has quite a, a, a sprawling variety of different APIs. So when it comes to how do I solve policy with Kubernetes, for example, uh, it's nice to have that here's where to look, here's where to start, here's how the community is approaching something like policy or a topic like policy and give you all the pieces that constitute that specific topic. So I think we've covered in the book all those kind of touch points as you go on your journey from Kubernetes, from deploying your first service to doing rolling upgrades to looking at policy to looking at governance to looking at security. We've kind of covered in detail in each of the chapters these pieces. And I think that's what the community needs right now. What are the aspects I need to worry about when using Kubernetes throughout my journey? So whether it's your first day using Kubernetes or you're in a large enterprise using Kubernetes and it's like, I have this new thing, as Brendan said, it should be that reference you have on your desk and you can get value out of it at any point. But I think short circuiting the time it takes to make a reasonable decision about a specific topic is why uh, best practices is out there now. So also we've got some air miles on Kubernetes in the real world. Dave, Eddie, myself, Brendan, we're out helping customers and we're seeing a, a wide variety of questions that come in so that we've used that to guide how we wrote the book to give people that reference material as here are the problems I'm going to need to solve. Here's reasonable ways to solve them. Um, so I just think that maturity in the ecosystem has led to this being the right time to write the book. I want to, and I want to echo Lockie's, you know, the, the maturity is there as well in the sense that there's a lot of uh, organizations, the community it's at large, it, they're already down the path of these projects and they really need, um, they don't want the, the step-by-step walkthrough that a lot of, it's all over the place, right? You see it on the internet everywhere. Uh, they need, I just need, hey, what's, if I'm looking at this and I'm going to my project manager or we're going into a scrum meeting, these are the few things we need to make sure that we look at uh, while we're, we're focusing on a specific topic. And, and that there hasn't really been a place yet um, for that. And I think this book really hits those points. And, and it's just a great little desk side book to say, hey, I'm, I, look, I need to look at networking. All right, pop it open and, and get to that little spot right there or policy, um, as Lockie was saying. So Definitely the velocity of both the community and, and also the velocity at which Kubernetes is changing. I think what we did a really good job of as well uh, to make sure that we kind of covered topics based on what we know about the project and what we know about how it, how it's moving in the future and, and um, try not to make it a, a snapshot in time of you know this version or that version of Kubernetes, but um, best practices that should follow through based upon um, the mission and the focus of what Kubernetes is, is going through and being part of the community and being part of the contributors uh, helps to help us uh, keep that mindset as we're going. Yeah, and to kind of Lockie's point on, uh, you know, the ecosystem really growing and becoming a lot more complex, uh, I think there's a understanding that users need to have to focus on those basic core concepts within Kubernetes. Uh, a lot of times they try to skip over those uh, and go on to and kind of over-engineer their environments, layer on more complex technologies. Uh, but it was really focused on understanding those core Kubernetes concepts that you need to learn and understand these things before uh, layering on other technologies. I just, just in hearing what everybody else said, I really like the mix of there's philosophy because people are signing on to, hey, we've gone to DevOps We've gone cloud native. This is a, the continuum journey. 
So the book, the book is a great mix of philosophy. So why you would want to do this, the problems it's aiming to solve and kind of tactical, how you would solve them in Kubernetes. So there's that mix that makes it a, a good read. So it's not just how to do policy on Kubernetes. It's, you know, for example, it's why would I want policy and what am I actually trying to solve as part of this in that continuum of, of cloud native ecosystem and moving your workloads to cloud native. Okay, so I feel like we've talked about your policy chapter a couple of times, and I do want to go into detail about a few of your your favorite chapters, or at least some of the chapters, because you all wrote several chapters in this book, and uh, we can't, of course, give our listeners a thorough overview of every single topic. I have a PDF in front of me. It's 258 pages. So let's, um, let's talk about uh, your policy chapter specifically, like what stands out for you there? What should you um, kind of tell people that might make them say, oh, that's for me? Well, f- for starters, it's chapter 11, and everybody loves hearing chapter 11 for anything. <laughs> so that, that's a great start. But I think in the ecosystem, as a lot more enterprises are coming on and looking at Kubernetes as a platform to move all their workloads, they have this outstanding question of how do I deal with policy and governance? And what this really is about is how do I make sure that the workloads that I deploy are conformant to some policy that we've set up, whether you're in a heavily regulated environment or you just want to understand how things are configured. So that's such a new concept in the ecosystem because obviously policy isn't the first thing you address when building something like Kubernetes. Uh, But now we just see a really uptick in people asking about how do I deal with policy. So it was fun to write that chapter from my perspective to give people an overview of where the ecosystem is at, where the tooling is at, and the things that you might be able to achieve with policy. So that was my uh, favorite chapter to write, although it was fun fun to write them all. But I think this answers a really, really salient question in the community right now, which is, how do I actually uh, get control of my workloads and make sure that they are compliant? So I hope everybody appreciates the the context that's given in that chapter. You know, and I think that's fantastic too, because if you think about it, if there is anything that um, enterprises that have actual customers and money care about is they care about making sure that everything that they're trying to control does get controlled in the expected way. So it's nice to see the Kubernetes community actually focusing on that. I know there's that uh, the open source project Gatekeeper in that space, um, and I think that's one of the examples that you go through in the chapter. If I'm if I'm not incorrect, yeah, that's correct. And the great thing about something like Gatekeeper is it's built on top of OPA, which is an open policy agent in the cloud native ecosystem. So we have a generic policy controller or a policy engine that people can use and things like Gatekeeper make a a Kubernetes native implementation of OPA. So there's a lot of ways policy can be expressed, but I think, you know, the the high-level philosophy of how you might want to achieve policy on Kubernetes is illustrated. And then there's kind of the tactical, how could I actually do this today using some open source tooling in the ecosystem? All right. Um, And so... uh other chapters that people were interested in highlighting. Dave, tell us about your favorite. Um, my favorite was resource management. Uh, it doesn't sound really uh, exciting uh, at all, but it's something that I see users struggle with a lot, uh, The with users I work with. 
Uh, and it has a lot of impacts on other things besides just running the actual workload, but it also has a lot of impact on things like uh, scaling within uh, Kubernetes. So uh, I really like that chapter because I think I learned a lot myself from it, uh, things I didn't know around uh, technology that were in Kubernetes that uh, you should really think about more when deploying your workloads. So uh, that's kind of why I was excited about that chapter, even though it doesn't sound exciting. Uh, but it really is, and it's a core thing that you have to really understand uh, before running workloads. I mean, it actually sounds sort of exciting from the perspective of if you're on call for production, possibly resource, you know, overruns are what's going to pay you. So people love the idea of having that be well controlled so that they don't end up with, gosh, wait, we had to save memory for the control plane. Interesting. I feel like there's, there's some, Kubernetes has some guardrails in there for that, right? Or is that kind of, eh, set it how you like? Yeah, there's definitely guardrails, and uh, the book really kind of hits on uh, those best practices around setting up things like request and limits that have a huge impact on how you run workloads and how your workloads are going to behave uh, when you do run out of capacity. Wait, you're saying that the cloud is not infinite. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I wish I had this chapter, you know, back in 2015, because I would say <laughs> that most of the outages I was paid for in the early days, I think most people trip across on resource management in the early days mm-hmm. as that cluster gets to 80, 90, 100%. And it's how do you deterministically understand what's going to happen when things start to run hot is really great context for you to be able to put the guide rails in place very early rather than having that 3 a.m. page, which, you know, the cluster is going into cascading failure, uh, is something that I've personally seen happen. And resource management would have been a great chapter for me to get started back in my early days Kubernetes. All right, Eddie, tell us about uh, the chapter that you found the most interesting to write. I found it, I found not only interesting, but I think it's probably the most challenging because I tried to ha- had to fit a lot of stuff into a, a concise uh, format. And I Mine was chapter nine, which covers networking, network security, and, and uh, the, the new magic buzzword, service meshes. Um, and, and I think the reason I like it a lot is because um, it is the, it's the foundation, right? Without getting this right, without getting networking correct, um, the architecture begins to fail right away. And we, especially when we start looking at hybrid um, platforms, when we start looking at cloud-based platforms and integrating it with very complex enterprise systems um, and complex WAN systems, um, little tiny things trip us up, right? DNS, the move from cube, D- uh, from, uh, cube DNS or sky DNS to core DNS and, and how that's configured, you know, that blue people's minds like, the first day and, and like, oh, I, this worked before and now it's not working and um, little tiny things. And then, and then the other part, especially in the enterprise spaces, we saw Kubernetes had this kind of like huge kind of like um, just, oh, we're playing with it and now we got we to gotta see it in production, right? And in some cases, like the customer I'm working with, um, a lot of the divisions just decided to put it in and like not even tell anybody and then come back later <laughs> Security's like, what is going on here? <laughs> and <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> right, and that's like, all my controls are gone. What do you mean? And and why is this not being seen by our our central security stack? And uh, how do I get those? And and that has all become it's it kind of uh, in some enterprises has come kind of full steam ahead and saying we need to 
kind of treat this as if it's just another node on our network. But when it comes to the Kubernetes space, there are new things and new uh, paradigms that we have to understand, right? North-South traffic is now handled potentially inside of Kubernetes, not by a device. And, uh, you know, we I talked specifically around you know, network policy agents and integrating it with your CNI and some best practices around choosing those, those toolings. Um, and, and then once you have that foundation, everything looks hunky dory. Um, now this immediately, the first next conversation is, well, someone told me I need a service mesh, uh, for my, <laughs> you need a service like, mesh because it's a floor wax and a dessert <laughs> topping, right? Right. Exactly. It's the, it's the, you know, what's the, the office supply company that had that little easy button, right? I got, I, I, I don't want to have to rewrite my app, but I want, um, observability. I want, um, security and I want policy. I just want to press this little easy button. And what they're finding out, unfortunately, is it's uh, not so easy. Uh, thousands of little buttons that you have to press in the right combination. Uh, is it a hard get... button? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it, you know, reality is it's not that hard when you start to, and, I, and again, I try, because service meshes are so new and I did not want to make this a point in time type consideration. Um, we talked, I tried talking more about uh, generalities of uh, everybody agrees that service meshes should do certain things um, correctly. Right. And, and um, if we, we decipher that and break those down into what those things are and um, deciding why you need those things and what the priority is uh, for your application stack uh, and then, then picking your vendor from there. And then I talk a little bit about the SMI spec, which, which kind of helps level that, right? And, and it's that idea of let's get a common API against those common things that all service meshes should do. And, and then as uh, service mesh um, creators start writing modules, they say, hey, if I meet this, uh, I know that I'll have this available to everybody at this level, and then I can add my value adds from there, right? And um, I kind of cover that and want to make sure people are aware of, of, of what to look for when they're trying to decide um, something as critical as a service mesh for their, their technologies. All right. So, Brandon, I know you don't want to pick a favorite child, but if you want to give us some of your thoughts now that you've completed this book and the parts of it that you guided and led, what stands out for you? What should people definitely uh, flip to that page and read. Well, I mean, the first chapter um, is sort of an intro, like, how do I even just lay out a service? Right? So I think, you know, some people may come at the book having already done a bunch of the basics, but like, if you come at it and you want to, you know, you've learned all these Kubernetes objects, but then you're like, wait, okay, how do I actually put it all together? That that chapter is a great one, uh, just to make sure people start on the same foot, the right foot. Um, but I actually like the one that follows that, probably the, uh, the best. Um, which is about how you set up developer and developer workflows on the cluster. Because I think that, you know, sometimes we adopt this tech and, and the operators love it or it's great for continuous delivery, but we've made the developers lives miserable. Um, but I think there's a lot that you could do to actually really use Kubernetes to not just make the operations and the running of the application better, but actually make developing the application easier as well. Um, so that chapter talks about, you know, how you could partition cluster with namespaces and how you can uh, you know take a look at uh, the the ways in which sort of the different life cycle moments in using a cluster um, there's the act where you've just hired a new developer and you say okay you know we're using Kubernetes and let's onboard you let's get you set up with the environment that you can use um, there's the aspect of like making sure that people can accidentally step on each other's toes with RBAC and things like that um, there is providing sort of cluster level services 
for people so that they don't have to learn about logging. Logging is just there. They don't have to learn about monitoring. Monitoring is just there. Um, and then things around sort of testing and debugging that uh, are critical flows that change a little bit, right? You're not just doing your development necessarily locally on your machine, um, but you're using this cloud-based resource or you're using this cluster-based resource. Testing and debugging are different, and, and it's important that we make sure that that's easy for people too. I think especially with testing, testing because if it's not easy, people will do less of it, and then you ship buggier software. Right. Um, so it's really a critical component of success is actually getting the environment set up before you ship the software or the place where you build the software. Um, and I think it can be sort of an underlooked uh, or an underappreciated part of the thing. We think a lot about production, but what goes into production comes from the place where we develop and the place where we test. So that, that's that's a chapter that I like a lot. But every chapter, every chapter is great. So. No, that's awesome. And that's a really good point, actually, because... Of course, uh, my mentality is I focus on production, but if people who are creating the production experiences don't have good onboarding and don't have good reproducible environments, then how are they going to produce good production experiences? So like that's, I like that, the idea of making um, Kubernetes workflows for developers, whether it's shared clusters or you know instantiation at will or whatever it is that they're doing, Making that more reproducible, making that easier is really valuable. Ooh. I, I remember reading that section when I was uh, originally reading through the book and thinking, oh, there's a lot of good ideas here. And maybe the hard question is, how do you get organizations to use them? Like what, what those of you who are out there dealing with people in the field, like do you, do you mostly see people doing the stuff that you're recommending here? Well, actually, I mean, I think I wrote, I think we wrote the book. I wrote the book because I think people want to, right? I don't think that, I don't think that they're like, no, we really want to provide a horrible developer experience or, <laughs> you know, we want to slow down our developers or we want to do a bad job with service mesh. Um, I, I think there's a lot of desire, but, but there's just not, the recipes just weren't, aren't there necessarily. I agree 100% with Brendan on that. I, I mean, the, the customer I, I'm focused on right now is, is um, they're going through that journey. And it's, 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 it's a twofold. It's like, hey, we get to reset some of this bad stuff that we did before on, because of institutional um, just processes that were put in place long before 98% of the developers that are working there now uh, are there. And, and they get to kind of do a quick reset and say, now we're going to this now new cloud native world. And, and how do we get to be how do we have this reproducible process, right? They even created their own little new division called, um, where they basically they're looking at patterns and practices, but they're basically called advocated patterns division. And that whole job is just to say, how do we put patterns together for our developers, our ops folks to say, our new world is all Kubernetes, it's all cloud native. How do we make it so it's really easy to onboard these folks? They don't have to change the way they do things. And, and we automate everything, right? That the beauty of DevOps, right? And how do we automate everything, get it working? Um, and that's the goal of just this whole new team within the, within the company itself. Really great point here too. Like, um, because those workflows have to change. And one of the things I found interesting working with a, a lot of customers is there's a big cultural impact too uh, that has to change a lot uh, to be successful at Kubernetes. 
Uh, and I just found that really interesting how the culture and how you work uh, needs to change too when you start adopting Kubernetes. And how is yeah. that different from any of the other patterns that they were using with their config management or their VMs or whatever? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is now you leave a lot of control up to kind of Kubernetes, things that you had very tight control over. Uh, it's no different than kind of adopting a, a DevOps type culture. A lot of those things are going to have to change and uh, just how you operate and the controls you hand over to developers to kind of empower them and uh, make them productive. I think the only thing I'd like to add is there's no right answer about the best way to do this, but there's a set of tools and techniques that we've all seen that have worked in different kind of ecosystems and environments. So this book goes goes into providing those set of blueprints, which help shape the decisions you need to make when adopting this kind of technology or making cultural changes, which I think is incredibly valuable. Without this, you're left scrounging around what is the best way to do uh, you know, push out an app and deploy and get developers onto things like Kubernetes or do network policy. So this scopes down the the touch points you would have to consider uh, based on things that we've actually seen out there in the wild working for different customers or community members. Okay, so we're a little short on time. So what I would love to do is get each of you to give us your best advice for best practices. Like you wrote a book all about best practices. And, you know, I don't know if you want to kind of touch on, depending on context or how people evaluate and make the decision, um, but like, you know, uh, I'll just, you know, I don't know, take you in, in a reverse byline order. Let's, let's start with, uh, let's start with Lockie and say, what's your best advice to people who are trying to have their Kubernetes best practices and, and read it too? Yeah, so for me, when I was out actually responsible for a platform that was built on Kubernetes, it was coming to the understanding that this is a journey that will take, you know, in, it will keep going. It's not a destination. There will never be a point where I look at the whole system and say, it is perfect. I no, need, no longer need to touch it. So always adjusting and reevaluating the decisions you make. Uh, so best practices for me is around guiding you to make a decision because I also see a lot of people out there who are paralyzed by indecisiveness because there's so many complex things that they can't grok all at the same time. So taking these best practices and actually making a decision and moving forward, I think is one thing that I would love people that read this book to, to be able to get out of it. The other thing is just you should be able to, no matter what stage of Kubernetes or your journey is with Kubernetes, reference this book throughout time and get something else out of it and continually uh, reevaluate the things and the choices that you've made and and make constant adjustments. So best practices is something that you can always refer to and it always gives you, you know, those nuggets of wisdom that you can take and course correct or change out there in your running environments. Excellent. And put a paper copy in your time machine. Um, in like in your DeLorean. You've <laughs> got to put it in your DeLorean and make sure Biff doesn't steal it from you. That's right. Can you imagine? We, we thought the sports almanac was valuable, but if somebody had this book, whew. all right, Dave. Yeah, so uh, the biggest thing I always stress is really you have to walk before you run with Kubernetes, uh, meaning that you really need to focus on those core concepts in Kubernetes and the core constructs 
that are available to you in Kubernetes before layering on a lot of complex technologies. Uh, because I think we overcomplicate our environments. I don't think Kubernetes has to be complicated. Uh, I think a lot of times we make it over-engineered and complicated because we have great tools like Helm where I can give it one command and have a service mesh up and running. But there's implications to, uh, you know, deploying these new complex technologies. So really focus on those core capabilities that are built into Kubernetes. Get really good at those and then iterate and add in some more of these really useful technologies like service meshes and that. Dave, I think I hear you killing my service mesh dreams or at least saying you can't start with that. Maybe start with a little bit more basic before you jump into really advanced. Yeah, it may not be a great starting point for day (laughs) one. Get good at those things like, you know, network security, uh, resource management, uh, policy. Uh, Those things are really important to be successful with Kubernetes. Nice. All right. Eddie, what do you got for us? Yeah, I think obviously echoing uh, uh, Lockie and Dave's uh, sentiments, uh, definitely. But I think another another one is um, when you approach best practice, especially around cloud native and Kubernetes, if you're coming from um, a long background and, and in other ways of doing things, especially uh, on-premises, old kind of server, VM kind of processes that you did before, um, keep an open mind, right? It, it may, the best practices you had there may no longer fit today. Um, and, and really try to uh, keep that open mind about how things work, especially when we are, um, I think Dave said it perfectly, you know, giving a lot of control over to this new thing that's, that's now kind of this, this data center operating system that's managing our, 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 our systems and uh, be, be open to just a new way of doing things. Cause I think um, the biggest challenge that Dave and I have in the field is um, uh, the, the bias of, um, you know, no, that's not how we did things. That's not how we do things today. Um, it's like, okay, but this is how you're going to have to do things. Um, and then start <laughs> layering, like, let's start from the simple and let's work our way up to the complex, as David was mentioned. All right, Brendan, tell us what you got. Yeah, I mean, I think I, a lot of it's been covered. Um, I think my, my biggest thing, just to echo, is to make sure that you understand why you're making every decision and why you're adopting every technology. Right? Even Kubernetes itself there should be a reason why you're doing it, not just because like it was in a, you know, the CIO or CEO magazine that everybody needs a (laughs) Kubernetes strategy. Like you need to understand the system well enough before you make, before you even start to understand why you think it's valuable to you. What is the pain you're trying to improve on? Um, And I would say that for every single technology. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of times people, say, well, but I mean, in order to use Kubernetes, I need to have XYZ also. And you're like, well, you know, actually, like, why? Um, you know, uh, people who are hosting simple websites behind an ingress and a service and a service mesh, and you're like, mm, I don't think you needed all that stuff. And, and remembering that that all adds operational complexity, especially because I think Kubernetes makes some things really easy, it makes it super easy to deploy deploy stuff. Um, but it actually doesn't help you understand the system. And I think it used to be that, you know, systems were hard, to, were sort of proportionally hard to deploy. And so you learn along the way. And I think one of the dangers that Kubernetes presents is that some things that are actually very hard to manage in production over time are very easy to get started with. 
And people then assume that that ease of use is going to continue throughout the life cycle of the tech, and it's just not the case. Um, maybe another way of saying this is that Kubernetes is alive. It's a, it's a living thing and not a not a static thing. So like it it and that goes to Lockie's point about it being a journey. Like it, it could turn on you at any moment, right? <laughs> like just because it's working today doesn't mean that you're not going to have to investigate something and change something tomorrow. Um, and I think that's a little different than, you know, something that's been statically deployed to a VM under somebody's desk and it's been running for years. So I think that's an adjustment for people too. That's, it, it almost seems like we have the Admiral Akbar principle there. Like it's a trap if you think that it's going to be easy, uh, but at least with this best practices book, it'll be easier. Okay. So let's, let's bring it on home. Uh, community events stuff uh where can our listeners catch up with you folks so i will be at all things open talking about non-code or non-code contributions to open source uh and also kubecon north america uh again talking about uh non-code contributions to kubernetes so i'm going to be at the kubernetes meetup in uh, heidelberg germany uh Mm -hmm. coming up in a couple weeks um, I'll also be at Microsoft Ignite in Orlando if you want to go to uh, Harry Potter World or Disneyland or Disney World, I guess. Um, family. Yeah, no doubt, right? Um, and I'll be at KubeCon as well, KubeCon North America. And you can also always see, obviously always hit me up on Twitter at Brendan D. Burns. I'll be, uh, my next event, I guess, is uh, my meetup here in Austin. So I, I co-lead the Austin uh, Kubernetes meetup. Uh, so we have our uh, October uh, 24th. Uh, meetup. So if you're in the Austin area, please come on by. And uh, the, I will also be at KubeCon and Contributor Summit uh, in San Diego in November. Um, and I may be at Ignite. I'm still deciding. All right now I'm on paternity leave, so I don't know what's going on with my schedule just yet, but um, I, I'm back at work on the, the 14th. So uh, I'll know more then. I will be at KubeCon North America in San Diego in November as well. Uh, so come and say hi. I'd love to chat about all things best practices or whatever your journeys are in Kubernetes. Uh, come up and make yourself known. You can also, I also have a YouTube channel where I do OSS unboxings to help people understand all the tools out there and what they might do. So that's a fun way to uh, keep up to date. And you can always uh, ping me on Twitter as well. So look forward to seeing everybody in KubeCon North America. Awesome. And uh, I will be, let's see, I'll be at Twin Cities Startup Week in a couple of weeks and then DevOps Days Philly and then DevOps Days Ghent and Velocity Berlin and KubeCon, of course. Um, and in terms of uh, something fun to check out that totally isn't tech, uh, theoretically today they're out for delivery. Joe and I are getting some Van Moof e-bikes. Um, so I am very, very excited about those. And apparently the correct number of bicycles to have in your life is N plus one. So this may not be the end to everything, but we we now have six bicycles. Well, when those come, we'll have six bicycles, two for me, four for him. So um, yeah. And then uh, we also have links in the show notes to all the things people talked about and um the uh, open CFPs for DevOps Days or DevOpsDays.org and Velocity Berlin. There's, as well as many DevOps Days, the discount code ADO2019 will give you discounts, 20% off in many cases. 
if you head over to ArrestedDevops.com slash Kubernetes-Best-Practices, you'll have this episode's show notes. Visit ArrestedDevops.com slash iTunes. Leave us a review in the iTunes store if you want to help other people find the podcast. That is apparently a thing that exists in the world. I have no idea how that works. But, um, we're also apparently on Spotify and iHeartRadio now if you're into those systems. Thanks so much to Brendan and Eddie and Dave and Lockie for joining today. Thank Thanks, you, Bridget. Bridget. Great to be here. I'm Bridget. At Bridget Kremhout, this is Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps. At the banana stand. <laughs> <laughs>